my general read on the final season of the show is that I think all of the decisions they made two were two things. One, uh, things George R. R. Martin told them were the end game of the books. I 100% believe that. I don't think any of the major turns in the final seasons um, are completely away. I think he's just going to put so much more legwork into them the show didn't have time for. Whether they work in that context, we'll see. The other factor, though, is that I think that they're not inherently bad. I think it's contextually bad. And so being able to try to provide as much additional context as I can just in terms of rhetoric and language became sort of an exercise for me to try to see, to try to see if some of these things worked or not. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'm going to be speaking with writer Miles McNutt. But before we get to any of that, a couple of notes, announcements I just want to put up at the top of the show. Uh, One is that I'm releasing this episode a little bit earlier in the week. I usually do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday release. This week I'm releasing it on Monday because, in general, I've seen that uh, fewer podcast episodes are downloaded when they're released during a holiday. Uh, People are usually with their friends or family hanging out and not doing things like listening to podcasts. Now, that said... Uh, this year might be a little bit different, and I hope that if it as it is at all possible this year, uh, that you are staying home uh, in your home unit, staying safe, uh, and not traveling. I know everyone's situation is different, uh, and there are different circumstances, but if it's at all possible, uh, I hope that you are not traveling for Thanksgiving, staying home, and helping to do your part to bend the curve this year. If you listen to this podcast, uh, I think you will be acutely aware of how seriously uh, we all at Culturally Relevant are taking the coronavirus pandemic, so I hope you are doing so as well. And finally, before we get to today's festivities, I do also want to say a hearty congratulations to former Culturally Relevant guest Charles Yu, who recently won the National Book Award for his book, Interior Chinatown, which uh, is a book that we discussed with Charles on Culturally Relevant shortly after its release. Uh, and it brings me a great deal of pride to know that, A, uh, Charles is someone we spoke with on Culturally Relevant uh, before he won the book award, and B, uh, that a Taiwanese-American won the book award for a book that was about issues that are very near and dear to my heart uh, as a Taiwanese-American. So congratulations to Charles. I'd recommend you go back, check out that interview. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with him. And yeah, that is a huge deal for him. I wish Charles all the success in the world. And I'm so glad that he's being recognized for his brilliant work. Speaking of people who I wish all the success in the world, Miles McNutt is our guest today. And I've been following Miles's work for around 14, 15 years, maybe. Uh, we both kind of came up together in the early days of Web 2.0, uh, trying to make a name for ourselves on the big open wide web. And we really were pretty scrappy in the early days. Miles McNutt was one of the first guests of any podcast I've ever recorded. Uh, our podcast was called The Watchers Podcast back then. And uh, I had enjoyed reading Miles's writing from on. I randomly found him online as somebody who seemed like a really smart guy. And just started conversing with him, started G-chatting with him. And uh, it's been amazing to see his growth and his career kind of take off over the years. He's now obviously a very well-respected TV critic. Uh, And uh, so it it gives me great pleasure to talk with him today about Game of Thrones. Miles McNutt is a TV critic who's writing 
can be seen at places like AV Club and Slate, as well as his personal blog, Cultural Learnings. And he's recently written Game of Thrones, A Guide to Westeros and Beyond, the complete series, which is a beautiful coffee table-esque companion book to the HBO original series Game of Thrones, a show that uh, I obviously hold near and dear to my heart, having hosted a cast of Kings, which is a podcast about Game of Thrones, along with uh, the brilliant writer and commentator Joanna Robinson. And uh, I was really eager to dive into this conversation with Miles because we talk about uh, a lot of things uh, of interest, Number one, to me at least. Number one, uh, what it's like to work with uh, uh, the company that is licensing the content, HBO, about you know on this book. Like, what, what is that experience like? Uh, what is the function that a book like this serves? But mostly, what we, what we really talked about was like, aside from Miles' rise uh, into the critic sphere, is what it meant to love Game of Thrones through its final season, which uh, many people saw as disastrous. And so uh, we talked about that as well and what the impact of that was on his book. So it was a really great conversation, in my opinion. I really loved catching up with Miles, talking about this book and learning from his experiences. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you are enjoying listening to this podcast in general, I'd really ask you to leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts uh, or wherever your podcast can be downloaded. Give a star rating for us. It really does help us distinguish ourselves from all the other podcasts out there. Or give us a follow at CREV Show, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W on Twitter. It really does help. Uh, so all that said, here is my conversation with Miles. Enjoy and stick around afterwards for our weekly recommendations. Miles McNutt, welcome to Culturally Relevant. Miles, something I like to do on this podcast is talk about breaking in stories and how you got into the industry. You've been a cultural critic for a while now. So tell us about what your big break was. I mean, so I started blogging in 2007 and like theoretically blogging is a break in the sense that you can meet people like I met you through doing that. I met various sort of scholars in the field that I'm now in. Uh, I met various critics by commenting on their blogs and them kind of reading my own and kind of being a part of that. But I think for me, sort of my turning point was about 2010, 2011. And this was a case where two things sort of happened. When I started writing for the AV Club, I had solidified relationships with Emily Vanderwerth and Scott Tobias and other editors there. And I was kind of given the opportunity to write for them that was much for a much larger audience it made me feel like i was yeah uh, and how did you get that profession. how did you get that job like uh <laughs> how did you go from unknown blogger to writing for av club which i would still argue is a fairly prestigious publication in the sense that they're like they're one of the go-to's like if you google a movie it'll say you know the canonical reviews rotten tomatoes av club you know it's like one of those sites that helps define the conversation how did you get that job I mean, it's the thing, like, when you sort of chart things back, like, I often find myself when I'm thinking about this, it's like, what were the sort of, like, pivot moments that sort of made this happen? And it's like, I can put it in context of I, through Canadian connections, got connected to Jamie Wyman, who was writing for McLean's at the time, and he had a blog, and he was writing about things that were relevant to what I was thinking about, sitcoms and stuff like this. And in those comments, I met Emily Vanderwerf. Emily Vanderwerf was running a sort of group blog called South Dakota Dark, and that blog involved a lot of people who would eventually go on to the AV Club, um, David Sims, uh, Carrie Reisler, a group of people. And so I was sort of just like, hey, you're doing this cool thing. I'm kind of doing that on my own blog. That sounds great. And Emily was like, hey, do you want to just write for us? And I'm like, sure. And then I did that for a little bit and then kind of faded off. And then 
by the time 2010 came around, Emily was running the AV Club's TV section, and it was sort of a bit of a wild west. It was kind of just off on its own, kind of very canonical in its own way in terms of TV reviews, but still kind of informal in a sense. And it was just the show came up as an opportunity and somebody needed to cover it. And they were looking for somebody from outside for reasons related to a former AV Club staffer writing on The Office. And basically, I got sort of called in like, are you interested in this? Can you do this? And I'm like, here's some samples. Here's what it looks like. And then I got the gig. And like, I really kind of fell into that. It's about so, so connections So a, a perfectly replicable path for anyone else, basically, totally. is what you're Honestly, like, I look at go back at that period, <laughs> and it's like, at that point, like, you did sort of need that kind of sort of point of connection. Eventually, they started doing open calls and bringing more people in. But yeah, like, and when I think back on that, it's like, that's like a multi-year process. And I think the key part in the middle of that is that Twitter solidified a huge amount of that is that the relationships, the kind of opportunities, the kind of chances that you create, I think really do build a lot of really positive relationships in that context that I look back on and think that because of that, it made it, I think, easier for that transition to take place. And then the other thing that happened sort of later that year in context was on my own blog, Cultural Learnings, I was writing about Game of Thrones, something that I had kind of just been writing about since the pilot was first announced. I'd read the books as a kid, it was an adaptation. And I just kind of wrote some very, like, almost scholarly takes on the relationship to fan culture and these different dynamics. And uh, I got an email from the publicist at HBO. They had found my work through a fan site that had linked to it. And I knew the person who ran the fan site from a message board I'd been on since I was a teenager. Again, the circuit has passed. That kind of moved through. <laughs> and I know. And so basically in that relationship then... The bubbles is like, I'm really interested in your perspective. I feel like you really understand what we're trying to do. Would you like to be on our mailing lists? And that was one of the first times where like I had the work that I was doing had been recognized and noticed by somebody who was kind of marketing a show and covering it, but it was just on my blog. They didn't come to it through AV Club or through a larger outlet. Right. And so I felt like that was a real sort of validation of that. I ended up getting screeners for the first few seasons and sort of starting my journey with Game of Thrones that became a sort of pivotal one when it came to my relationship with cultural criticism. And so that to me is sort of the year at which a lot of things fell into place. But like I said, it, that's a three-year How process. long had Game of Thrones been running at that point? A Game um, of Thrones was just starting. It hadn't even started yet. It hadn't debuted. Oh, um, okay. So, so, I was, so you, you, I, I you were was, writing about it before it debuted, you're saying? This is, if nothing else, this is a scholarly approach. I was writing about how it, they had set up some <laughs> blogs and things uh, connected to fan culture, and they were like sharing fan art and kind of trying to bring the existing fans of the book into the process. And I was sort of like, this is, I think, a good approach in terms of trying to make a fantasy series work at a context where, like, the idea of fantasy on TV was still sort of niche at that point in time. Now that seems crazy, but in the relationship to that and sort of just kind of talking about the strategies they were using and how they were connecting to this. And then, yeah, basically... Uh, they found that and were sort of like, this is indeed what we're trying to accomplish. You seem to have a perspective on this that kind of moves through. And then it kind of just uh, grew from there. And so I think that was really the start of the feeling that, okay, the way I do this, I don't necessarily need to change or compromise the sort of more academic approach to what I'm accomplishing here. Uh, I can sort of find a place for that within these different environments. And so that's kind of where that made me feel like there was a path there. And that was a decade ago. So, Yeah, and it's kind of, a. it, it sounds like, not necessarily a big deal the way you describe it of oh someone working on public like publicity for game of thrones reached out to me you know but it, it is kind of validating it, many people re report it as like one of the big moments when the publicity arm of uh, a major company reaches out to you to say like hey do you want to cover this it's a big deal because they're basically acknowledging, hey, either what you're doing is so high quality that we want to be associated with it, or you have such a large audience 
that we want to reach that audience somehow, right? And so it's, it's it's kind of a form of validation, basically, when some publicity company or uh, publicity arm reaches out to you. Right. And I think, like, I remember back when I first started blogging, like, I got on a mailing list. It's like, do you want to review season three of Supernatural? And I'm like, sure, send me some DVDs. That felt more just like they were, like, spreading a wide net. But I think right, what, right. what particularly made me feel validated in this case was that I hadn't, like, written this, like, really fanish, which is to say there's nothing wrong with fan press. But, like, I hadn't written this just, like, everyone's so excited about this, you know, A+, plus, you know, can't wait. Like, I hadn't written something that was promising that I was going to talk about the show in a way that would sort of be, you know, kind of inherently sort of praise, you know, driven. It was very much like, no, I have some perspective on what they're accomplishing. I was I was praising the job they were doing, but realistically, I think it was clear from my approach that I wasn't going to go into this in sort of a point of slavish devotion. And I think that is something that I think for me is sort of like, that's never the approach that I really wanted to take. It's a compromising approach for what I do. And so for me to be able to sort of still feel like I can gain access to things while maintaining what I saw as my sort of more scholarly perspective, that I think was the part of that that I took the most heart to and felt like I could carry forward. That's what's so interesting to me about this book and this project and the fact that you're doing it is because when I think of the words Miles McNutt, the last words that come to mind are slavish devotion. Right. <laughs> uh, That's fair. Quite, That's fair. Quite, quite the opposite. Uh, I, you know, in the past, I feel like some of the stuff you've written has been, uh, has ruffled some feathers of the people who you've been writing about. And uh, I've never felt it come from a place of malice. You know, I've never felt it come from a place of uh, anger or rage. It's just, right. you're, you're just dis- dispassionately just saying like, hey, this is a thing that like doesn't work for these reasons. And um, sometimes people get upset about that stuff. So I, I am curious how you went from being a fairly well-read critic about Game of Thrones right. to then being asked to produce Game of Thrones, A Guide to Westeros and Beyond, the complete series, which is an official kind of Game of Thrones companion that's uh, supported slash endorsed uh, by uh, is it HBO right that that yeah is making, it, basically yeah. yeah it's an officially licensed book in that regard yeah, officially um, licensed so, book so how did you go from being cultural critic to being asked to do this book so I will say two things uh, first of all in terms of the sort of uh, you read my kind of critical perspective as sort of being a not dispassioned but like by nature like not like hurtful or hateful but Correct. rather just kind of framing it that way uh, what I've discovered is people who don't know me <laughs> do not read it that way um, I. Emily Vanderwerf and I did a long sort of oral history of this process, but um, I come up in the oral history of The Office of having written about that show. And basically yeah. there's a whole there's a whole section where they talk about the way in which my reviews, they basically hate read them and they were fascinated by them. But like the way they frame that, like in my head, I'm like, I never expect the people who make TV to agree with what I say. There's various things they know that I don't and things that... I get it. I never expect them to be like, yeah, that person's right about my show. Uh, but that, I'm not aiming for that. That's not my goal. I'm not writing for them. But like, they really felt like they were just like, who? Who is this hate-filled person? Like, what is right, like, right. what could he and, be and driven let's just by? Be, let's just be clear. Let's just be clear about what they're talking about. Is towards the end of the office's run, if I recall right. correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, yes. but like towards the end of the office's run, the show made some. Uh, decisions about how to frame 
the whole like uh, Jim Pam relationship and how to frame the whole fact that like in the conceit of the office, the show, there are theoretically filmmakers following these people around and like how the show tackled that subject, things of that nature that you were, uh, you, you did not think worked really. And you I wrote mean, about this on AV club is yeah, my, I mean, like, is my recollection. Yeah. I mean, like I was writing 22 episodes, like 22 reviews a season, right? You're writing about every episode in a granular way. Here's 2000 words about each piece of this puzzle that who knows the way things were mapped out or production struggles, et cetera. But yeah, basically I was writing about, this is a Robert California era, the struggle to replace Michael Scott, yeah. uh, the difficulties kind of stretching out Jim and Pam's relationship, trying to make that interesting. Um, kind of just, you could tell they were just kind of pulling at things. And it's like, they even agree in this oral history that it really didn't work. But like, they were like, they read these reviews of, there's a line in there that's basically just like with equal part disagreement and just fascination at who this person is. Like they were so fascinated by this idea. I ended up unknowingly uh, meeting one of them at a Television Critics Association press tour event. And when I introduced myself as Miles, because I was asking a question after a panel had completed, <laughs> Uh, the writer in question was just like McNutt. Like he immediately was just like, <laughs> so just like, and, you, and I, I was like, what in the world is going on? I did not put it together until I sat down. But like his reaction to this was basically just like, I'm meeting him in the flesh, this person. Like, who is he? Like the psychological profile of this. This, like, this basement spice. dwelling neckbeard who, you know, like has written all this hateful stuff about me. But you you are one of the least hateful people I know, Miles, is the thing. I know. And I think that's the sort of perspective on it. And I think that's part of what sort of comes down to is that certainly like i've written a lot of criticism about game of thrones held them accountable for storylines etc but like i felt like i have this approach where it's like it's very measured it's very here's why this doesn't work it's very much analytical it's not really emotional in its responses that doesn't match who i am and so i think that from that perspective what I had in relation to Game of Thrones was a clear track record of understanding and being invested in this story and kind of moving through this. But also because I had this relationship with HBO Publicity, they knew me, which meant that they sort of knew the perspective that I had. They knew my level of professionalism. And the way this book came to be was that there had actually been two previous books that the publisher Chronicle Books had worked on in relation to this, um, which had been guides to the first four seasons, the first two and then the third and fourth. And these were kind of behind the scenes, production based, part story, part character, but mainly kind of interviews with production staff talking about these different pieces. And those have both been written by people involved with the production. The first was written by Brian Cogman, a writer on the show, and then Kat Taylor, who was on the production staff in the UK, wrote the second book. And the idea was they wanted something focused more on story and characters to line up with the final seasons of the show. And they were then looking for somebody from more of a sort of journalistic perspective. And I think in... I have no idea if they went to like five other people other than me before they came to me. I don't know the full story of that process. But all I know is that I got an email from the publicist I'd spoken to, you know, six or seven years earlier, basically being like, hey, uh, there's something that's come up. Your name popped into mind. Let's talk about it. And then it was sort of just a bit of a back and forth to see, to your point, like, was this like a dissonance that was never going to sort of be resolved? What kind of freedom would I have to talk about what I wanted to talk about in terms of what this looked like? And I think to your point, like, I very, it became very clear early on that I wasn't going to be able to be critical of the show. And I knew that going in. But my perspective was, okay, but it's an opportunity to contextualize and put into perspective this entire series and to try to bring the perspective that I have 
and the things I'm interested in and passionate about and the things that I teach talking about issues of identity and class and gender and things like this to kind of talk about the ways in which the show is saying interesting things about those. I don't get to go into all of the criticisms I have, but ultimately I think the show does have enough substance to it to be able to talk through that. And so I kind of took on the project as an experiment in a way to think about that process and to kind of work through this. And I also think that I was given a slightly optimistic view of how much I would be able to bring those perspectives <laughs> into the project. Um, I did my well, absolute best, but I do think that I was told some things that in retrospect were definitely uh, maybe not entirely accurate about what restrictions right. would exist on the content. Ne- the never going to happen. Never going to happen. No. But but let's... Uh, so I, I want to react to some of the stuff you said. Uh, yeah. I, I will say as somebody who hosted... I think it's fair to say one of the most popular Game of Thrones podcasts. Yep. Um, along with Joanna Robinson. I mean, and, and, and I will say that uh, I, I think that um, people really tuned in for Joanna and also my <laughs> dynamic with Joanna. I'm, I'm, I have no illusions about the fact that she was the star of, of the podcast. And, you know, uh, I still really enjoy working with her. And, and uh, But I'm just being realistic that I'm, I'm not saying, like, people tuned in for Dave Chen's perspective on Game of Thrones. No, it was <laughs> – Joanna was really very, very knowledgeable. And, and it was great to hear her perspective on the show. But one thing that I really struggled with, and I'm just giving my experience. I, I'm not talking about Joanna's experience. But, like, my experience uh, was I think that the ty- – what I didn't grasp in, in my early days – was that the type of person that would listen to a Game of Thrones podcast is someone that really loves Game of Thrones in right. general, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and in general, they want to hear a podcast that will celebrate that love of Game of Thrones. Yeah. In ge- just in general. Not not everyone, but mm-hmm. in general. And, I, you know, I have been making podcasts online for 14 years. And when I started, it was all just about like, here's my perspective on this. Here's my perspective on this. And that's that's what I thought that people tuned in to hear but once cast of king started catching on it became clear that like we are attracting a massive audience of people who had never heard of me before and just wanted to listen to a game of thrones discussion yeah and there was a lot of um pushback uh to some of the the challenges that i had with the show you know my, my criticism of the show uh and it got uh, occasionally really intense with some of the people that like really didn't like the podcast uh, because now I should, I should mention, right. The overwhelmingly vast majority of people have been extremely lovely and of awesome. Course. Of course. Um, but it, it is interesting just to reflect on the fact that like, I think that uh, that's just kind of been my own tangle with fan culture, right. Is that like, yeah. if you, people want to listen to a game of Thrones podcast, you want to hear about how great it is. You want to hear, you want to, you want to celebrate the genuinely groundbreaking achievements that the show has made. And we, we did offer that sometimes, um, yeah. but o- often also tempered it with, uh, with critiques. And, and the critiques can come off as, as very bad uh, to people who are expecting something else. That was clearly the case with people uh, reading <laughs> reviews of The Office <laughs> right. and you. 100%. And, and, and so... Uh, anyway, so that, that's just kind of like I, I validate that like it's this odd situation where uh, because you're discussing a show that you think had problems, right? It, it comes off as like quite hateful, right? Like because that's not what people want. That's not what people expect. Absolutely. And I think it's really weird, too, where it's sort of like in the case of The Office, it was sort of like it's a late in life sitcom. Like, what do you expect at this point? Like, the show is going to struggle. It's going to figure out its voice. It's going to kind of try to find things. When you read the oral history, that's everything that was happening. 
but it's just sort of like at that point, there were two camps as it relates to The Office, and I was in neither of them. One was, this is still amazing, you're a hateful person. And the <laughs> second was, and the second was, it's trash, it's a trash version of its trash self, like, why yeah. are you even giving it a C? Like, it's just Fs down the board, and I'm just like, my view is like, well, I can try to find an in-between between these two perspectives. I can agree with the trash people sometimes, but I can also say it still has merit and potential. And it's just like, nobody wanted that. Like, nobody. And it's like, at the end of the day, Switching the Game of Thrones, I was writing in my personal blog for a while. There, fans were finding it. But, like, I was writing from more of a book reader's perspective. I was sort of getting a kind of different point of view. And when I moved to the AV Club, I knew that that was going to dramatically expand the audience of the reviews and that I was going to keep writing the way I was writing and that those by nature would create this potential dissonance. But I also knew that because the AV Club divided them between newbies and experts, that I was more likely to find, quote-unquote, my people in the expert section who were approaching the show from a similar perspective. And so I always felt more like those worked in terms of those relationships that you speak to. Um, and But, like, again, like, there's, what, Game of Thrones gets so big so fast. In the first season, I felt like I was writing to this, like, wonderful niche of, like, Game of Thrones fans Right. who'd read A Song of Ice and Fire, who came from the fan sites, where I was just sort of like, this is the community and this is what it looks like. And I think I kept those people because my blog reviews for the first you know, three to four seasons kind of stayed at a... Still, I'm still getting a lot of readership compared to other stuff, but like it was still fairly modulated. Whereas like when I went to the AV Club, as the show blew up, like you say, it definitely like became so much larger than that. And I realized the vast majority of people reading like don't care about me or my perspective or critical perspective at all, which makes me wonder why they're reading. But they want to consume as much content as possible. They want to immerse themselves in this franchise and in this story and get as many perspectives as they can. But like, there's definitely, like you say, a more of an expectation of a sort of fanish response to something. And I'm like, there's all sorts of places for that. It's never going to be exactly the thing I do. And then it was, it was, it was kind of eventually what I was doing, except that I think part of what I realized early on was that this book really wasn't intended to be from a fan perspective. It was meant as sort of a guide for an average viewer. And right. I took that yeah. as being more of my approach, where it was less so much an issue of this is someone who just loves Game of Thrones, and it's more somebody that, you know, this is a gift for the relative who you know watches Game of Thrones, but you know very little else about them. So you got them in the gift exchange. You know they like Game of Thrones. I found a book about this. And it's sort of like... Uh, oh, it's, I, would say, I would actually go farther than that. I would say it's for the relative or friend who likes Game of Thrones and maybe doesn't know that much about Game of Thrones. Right, and is, I think that's probably true. That The idea is that this is a book that somebody could come to and I think that if somebody has read every word I've written about Game of Thrones, this book is going to be like, this has offered nothing in this context. But I think other people like <laughs> yeah, legitimately exactly. probably got something out of this in a way. Yeah, I would say like I casual Game of Thrones fan. Ca yeah, casual and, Game of Thrones fans. And honestly, like yeah. being, uh, being extremely online as I am and you are, the idea of a casual Game of Thrones fan is like, who is that person? <laughs> like, what is this we're talking about? Like, I don't understand. Like, I see nothing but this intensity and this, like the scale of this but the nature of the scale of the show was that 
there were plenty of people just really casual, kind of like they liked the show, but they didn't read every review. They didn't kind of consume all this content. They didn't listen to five different podcasts. They didn't listen to one podcast. And I think that the book was realistically imagined more for that audience. And I think it took me a while to necessarily sort of grasp onto that. And once I did, I think I found the project in many ways more interesting because it was sort of like, I'm now kind of serving more as a translator, right? Of kind of finding this large sprawling story and kind of trying to boil it down. I think that perspective became much less sort of, I have to turn off what I'm doing critically and more, I have to approach this from a very different perspective that really has no relationship to my critical writing and is much more kind of even, maybe even going back to like when I was an English major in college, just like distilling a story and finding threads and kind of articulating that. I think it became a really interesting exercise. It was just different than what I normally do, but at the same time stimulating. So can I offer my brutally honest assessment on the book? I, I never do this uh, on this podcast, but I'm you going to- You are more to, than welcome uh, to do so. I'm going to propose that I do this because you and I have known each other for like a decade. We have, yes. Um, and that is, so I, I, I read a good portion of it in advance of this conversation and uh, I, the prose is excellent, right? It's just really, really well done prose. And I, it's like a- it, it, it does serve the purpose that I think we just discussed about if there's somebody who kind of has watched like most of the show and wants to know more about it, this is a great resource for them. Also, I want to call out that uh, while the digital copy is on sale for $4 and you can get access right now, I mean, the, the sale is going on through the end of November, I think, yep. you can access Miles' excellent prose about the uh, show for a few bucks through the end of the, uh, the month, and uh, I would recommend that. But... Um, you can also buy the hard copy book, which I would say is probably the intended format of the book. It's right? like 1000% the intended one. I mean, it was yeah. early on, I read every Amazon review of this book. I don't recommend that. Um, but <laughs> I, I did. And like, there was one person where it's just like, I bought this on Kindle. I don't think it's supposed to be for Kindle. And I'm like, no, like this is, this is imagined as a coffee table book. That was yes. always how it was positioned and designed and how it was sold and how it was priced. And so I think that that's really the artwork. I think the designers did a great job. I had nothing to do with that. Um, I think it's a very attractive volume in that respect, meant to be sort of perused and the photos and everything like that. Right. The nature of being licensed is they have access to all that imagery. So I think that's really how it's meant to be seen. Yeah. If you, I mean, if you look at it, it's also like I would argue a good purchase for the completist. Like yeah. if you if you really appreciate it and enjoy your Game of Thrones experience, you can keep this book. You can buy this book, and it's kind of like this is my way of remembering. Uh, everything that I experienced with the show because it is fairly exhaustive about all the characters, the items, the weapons, and the locations uh, from the book. So uh, for, for all those reasons, it is a book that is worth purchasing and it is a very attractive volume, as Miles said. That said, <laughs> when I was reading the book, I was like, where is where is Miles McNutt's voice in all of this? Because <laughs> um, it is it is unrecognizable from right. uh, what I typically expect from uh, Miles's criticism and analysis, which is very very I would say um, convoluted is negative like negative <laughs> connotation, but I would say yes, like mm -hmm. I would say intricate, right? right like yeah. your 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 critiques are intricate. Very well reasoned, very well thought out. Um, you you often like contextualize them by by bringing in other works, right? Which like mm -hmm. this book doesn't do really. Nope. Um, and so 
it, it, I would say, while it is great for all the reasons we suggested, it does not really give a good sense of your typical voice. Is that correct? Is that correct? That's one hundred percent correct. And I mean, like, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one of them is that uh, just the nature of like the pieces are like between five hundred and eight hundred words long, and so the ability to sort of extend out beyond that, they wanted it kind of your your average piece is a couple thousand, right? Like when you write online, basically. <laughs> I yes. mean, yeah, if we're lucky. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yeah, if, if I'm if I'm under two thousand, it's a good day for all parties involved. Um, so the thing about that, right? Is yeah, that I, was I, like, this... I was like, what is what is happening here? Like this is so short. Like my, I'm usually used to you know curling up with a with a, hup, a, a cup of hot chocolate and and a blanket to read yeah. a Miles McNutt review that's going to yeah. take me forty five minutes. Correct. Meanwhile, I'm like speeding through this book like uh, super quickly. It's, and it's honestly like it was really I knew that going in that they, they wanted this to be kind of quick short pieces and that like I started to realize okay this means you have to take entire character arcs and sort of stretch them out and kind of go through this and I think the two things happen in the midst of this one is that like you know ultimately I don't have editorial control over this book by its nature HBO has final say about what's in it because they're the licensor and they own it like the book is theirs effectively so this is sort of a contract for hire piece and I knew that going in and I'm like I'm just going to do what I can within that and know that whatever happens afterwards I'm going to fight my battles and find from there but what I realized very quickly is just like even in editorial it's like the second that I would try to make more of like an argument or a thesis in a particular essay, the edits would come back and that section would just be gone. Like the solution, <laughs> the solution to things that they may not have wanted me to start. So, for example, uh, in context, so Catalan Stark, you know, this kind of critical, tragic figure in this story, you know, she goes into everything trying to save her family. And I argued in my first draft of an essay that a lot of this was her fault. That, like, Catalan's actions, she was rash, mm. that she was sort of, you know, ultimately made a bunch of mistakes, um, that ultimately you could draw direct lines between the tragedy of the Red Wedding and choices she made along the way to escalate this conflict, and that she is sort of, that's the tragedy of her character. And I wasn't like, Catalan's the worst, but, like, apparently, <laughs> whatever I had said. So when that essay came back, it's not like they tried to, like, nuance what I was trying to argue. Right. They just literally, like, deleted the thesis, and it just became <laughs> a list of things that happened to her character. And I'm just like, no, 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 guys. Like, we need to say something. Like, we need to make a point. Like, we need they need to leave this 600 words about Catalan Stark with a new perspective on this character. And I think the reality was that I had to fight tooth and nail for there to be any kind of basic argument or thesis because two reasons. One, I think they got very wary about any like position, even if I wasn't being critical of the show, but just anything that would be perceived as being potentially sort of negative or demeaning. Uh, there, whether there were legal reasons or licensing reasons or what have you, there seemed to be a lot of kind of suspect nature. I never get a clear answer and I don't think I ever will. But I think the other factor was that these things were so short and they were so much like we want to make sure we get the information in there. We want to make sure there's enough that this is a reminder for people. And I think part of that also goes back to the fact that the book's original intended purpose was to serve as a guide that would be released before the final season. And as a result would be a way to catch people up and remind them of what had happened in preparation for the final season. And the book was supposed to be in stores the Christmas before that happened. And that didn't happen, which meant that eventually it became the sort of overarching compendium of the entire story. I don't uh, think... Uh, why, why didn't it happen, by the way? Uh, publishing. 
like just a variety of delays that had nothing to do with just me or just anybody else, but just mm. enough dominoes fell, um, staff changes, uh, things like that, just like just normal things. Well, before before we uh, continue, I just want to say that, uh, I, you know, despite how uh, what I've said about the book, it, it sounds like I might be trashing the book, which I'm. I hope you don't no, no. think no, I no, am. Of right? not. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm just uh, I'm trying to bring the Miles McNutt clinical uh, analysis to the book. Right. Yeah. And. Uh, I will say that there is a kind of um, almost like a thrill in seeing how is Miles going to sum up the entire arc of Catelyn Stark in five paragraphs? Like, because <laughs> yeah. you are basically compressing, you know, many, many seasons worth of developments into a really short, readable chunk. And there are a lot of decisions that need to be made when you do something like that. Like, what to include, what to exclude, what are the main, you can't include everything. So you have to make a lot of interesting decisions about what to include and exclude. And I will say there there is like an interesting like as a as a kind of meta read. It's just kind of interesting to reflect on what you left in and left out as I was reading through it. No, absolutely. So. And I think that that was sort of, I think, what started to interest me about it, right? That's why I found my perspective. I was doing a different task than I would normally, but I'm like, okay, how do I articulate this? But again, what gets left in, what gets left out? Which parts are most important? And I think the challenge of this was that, so the bulk of this book a first draft of this book was completed before the final season, which was written while the penultimate season was airing. And so as the season would air, I would get new insights. Okay, this character's dead now. That essay after has to reflect the fact they're dead. Or this essay is more or less important in terms of how that plays out. Okay, this gets structured here or there. And so that was a challenge in of itself, but the season ended. I had time after the season ended to sort of go back through and figure out what I was doing. The, fi- the final season you're referring to? No, this is a penultimate season. Oh, the so penultimate. first okay, draft yeah, gotcha, was gotcha. finished at that point. And, and did you... And did you- have any insight into what was going to happen in the final season no. before anyone else did? No. So oh, they you... were so like I did. I did. So I, I went to New York. I met with HBO with and the publisher. We talked about this, brainstormed some kind of perspective. They had their perspective on what it, what it was supposed to be. Publisher had their perspective. I had my perspective. We found our uh, medium, if it were. But um, in the midst of that, like they were just so fundamentally secretive, and like it was just like and like and I wasn't even trying to learn more. I didn't want to know, right? I, I didn't right. want to be spoiled. Like that mattered more to me. I was still writing about the show critically. I wasn't. I wanted that to be my experience with this. Um, but like, no, they were just like we got nothing on what that looked like or how that played out, and so we just had to each week kind of go back to back. And we thought that was its own form of challenge. But then once the book wasn't going to make that holiday season, they're just like, look, we might as well just make it the whole series. But that meant that I then had to completely revise and edit and change the book in the middle of the final season with a final deadline for a first draft of roughly two weeks after the finale. And so every week I would get on the phone with the publisher and just be like, okay, what happened this week? What did this change? Uh, does this character need a bigger essay? Does, does this battle important enough? What did this do to this perspective? And so if you think about the final season of Game of Thrones, without even going into spoilers, and you think about how each week of that season just completely like upended <laughs> entire character arcs in very significant ways. Yeah. We then had to like basically get on the phone with and just sort of be like, okay, so I guess we're throwing out that and this and that's completely changed that perspective. And I remember there was particularly there was people will know what character I'm talking about if they've seen it. I won't spoil it directly, but like I had written a piece about a character who was very much talking about, you know, their heroism and their really valued arc. And then all of a sudden, 
And like, this is actually a piece where like, I had written it to be a little bit more measured and critical, but the editor was just like, no, this is the real heroic piece. We've got to push this. And then, so I get back on because the phone. Because you, you, like, you wrote it to be more measured because you knew what was coming. You you suspected what was coming, right? I felt like we shouldn't like plan our feet. Like that right. seemed like a bad idea to me. Yeah. But yeah. I kind of got overridden a little bit. Uh, and then I get, we came back to it. And I'm just like, hey, guys, so I think uh, we're going to have to like adjust that just a tiny bit. And so like, but like, and honestly, it's like, again, like you point out to like, where am I in this? It's like, I am in attempting to sort of figure all of that out. It was, it was not my normal task necessarily. But I do think a lot of what my perspective on that story kind of provided was an effort to sort of be like, okay, making those judicial choices of what's important and what's not. And to kind of point to that specifically, I had a huge fight with them about the sort of Jamie Cersei rape scene um, in season four, which was a big point of controversy. And like at the time I was starting this book, felt like it was still a really meaningful part of the discourse around those characters and the story and how the show handled these things. And I knew that was going to be a real pressure point because there'd been disagreement in the production. The director had said one thing, the writers had said something else. There had kind of seemed to be some disagreement about how exactly rape functions, what sexual assault is. And I was just like, if we need to talk about this moment between Jamie and Cersei, and if we need to contextualize this, we need to choose language that acknowledges the, how messed up this was. We can't sort of diminish it in how we frame it. And like my big fight with them was always like, look, these things that are quote unquote problematic for you that you think we can't touch, if we don't touch them, that's much worse than if we contextualize them. Because I think if you contextualize some of these things, we can at least understand what they're trying to say in the story. We can kind of frame them within the nature of the narrative. I think that that's their approach. And they were just like, no, don't talk about them. Just don't address them. And I had this big back and forth, kept trying to see if I could push it through, kept coming back and edits pretty much gone. But by the time I got to the final season, I was just like, we don't really have time to cover that anymore. Like that story <laughs> has gone so far beyond that moment in that context where I'm just like, if I'm summing up Jamie or Cersei's stories, there's too much else that yeah. has to be covered here for this to reasonably be looked through. And if I was writing it, 3,000 word essay on these characters is one thing, but when they want these quick hits, someone could just pick up the book, turn to a page, and finish reading something. It's just not happening. And I realized that I had gone through that whole fight, and realistically, within the scope of the book, that wasn't going to be included anymore. And I was just sort of like... Th that wasn't going to be including meaning like any of the analysis that you had, the context, yeah. the analysis that you had discussed, yeah. Like realistically, that was... that that Suddenly, a lot of things that felt really important midway through the series became footnotes. In a yeah. book that doesn't have yeah. notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's what the final season did. So, so I mean, we we got to talk about the final season, and yeah. uh, and it's interesting to hear about your perspective, like rewriting the book because of the final season. But right. in order to do that, we're gonna need to spoil the final season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I, I would highly doubt anyone has made it this far into this conversation. It seems unlikely without having watched Game of Thrones. So right. if you, but if for some reason you've re you've made it this far, you haven't watched Game of Thrones at all. Buy Miles's book. Game of Thrones, a complete guide to Westeros and beyond, the complete series, and then read it, and then come back and listen to the rest of this conversation. I will say, I will say that in the Amazon reviews, there were multiple people who like gave it to their mother, and their mother hadn't watched the final season yet, and it spoiled it for them. I see. And I'm just sort of like, it says the complete series right in the title, <laughs> really, really awkwardly, because that got added after the fact once it became about the complete series. But mm. I think I was going to say, I was going to say, pretty clunky title because it has two colons in it. <laughs> Game I mean, of Thrones, colon, A Guide to Westeros and Beyond, colon, the complete series. I will say um, that if we're talking about my writing being convoluted, I feel like the title is giving you everything you need. 
The uh, was it originally just Game of Thrones colon A Guide to Westeros and Beyond period? Like that was yeah, the end of that the was the end of the title. I see, but then because the publishing got delayed, it's like let's just make it about the whole series. And I think they wanted to articulate that it was the complete series, lest people be confused and potentially spoiled. So I, I you know, just a, as a mental exercise, I wonder like would it have done better if it had come up before the end of the series? Right, like. And people, you were releasing this book, and hey, get, get caught up on on the whole show, like before the final season. I, you know, uh, I will say oh, that after to the point we're about to discuss, after watching the final season, I'm very, very glad this book did not come out before that, because <laughs> I would have looked like I would have looked like a right idiot, and I feel like that would have been no good for anybody. Okay, well let's let's talk about this. So, yeah. um, a a very beloved person to me sent me a TikTok recently of. Uh, of a woman talking to the camera, and she said basically, hey, you know how everyone is talking about, now that we're in quarantine, like do, starting their rewatch of something, like The Leftovers, or Lost, or, uh, you know, what have you. But you ever notice how nobody is talking about starting a rewatch of Game of Thrones? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was what the TikTok said, and it was it was this funny realization that like when quarantine started beginning, right? People were saying, "Oh, let's rewatch this, let's rewatch this," but nobody was saying, "Let's rewatch Game of Thrones," and that is because the final season of Game of Thrones was widely regarded to be, I think, the technical term is trash. Um, people hated this. This is a widespread opinion. Let me yeah. pause there. Do you concur that I've characterized this correctly? I think you've characterized the response correctly. I think the best way I would describe it is sort of that even for people who didn't necessarily think it was trash, I wouldn't argue it was trash, for example. I think that it rewrote a lot of people's perspectives on the story and kind of came to define their relationship to the show. And while you want a final season, in many ways, like Lost is an example of a show that has a final season that is also controversial in various ways, but I would argue at its core like boils down some key thematics that those who've watched the show can kind of be reflective about. That when Boss eventually ends its run, it feels like it understands the journey and wants to put that in perspective. Whereas by comparison, the final season of Game of Thrones is just like, no, this is it now. This is the show. This is the ending. We're here. And I think that it very much felt like it was compromising what came before in a way that makes going back and reflecting on that incredibly difficult and if not impossible <laughs> yeah i mean having spent many years podcasting about game of thrones and watching the show and talking about it uh, having met my wife through shared fame of Th game of thrones fandom you know like it's it was a huge part of my life yeah but the final season was such a I, i've never seen a show that has been so so well regarded fall so fast in the eyes of the public, like just in terms of how quickly people turned on the show. And I would say that there were probably, uh, th there's a, f a few factors for that. Right? One is I actually watched the whole documentary about the making of the final season and it looks fucking exhausting, right? It looks like yeah. everyone is just completely burned out. Like there's just, there, there's, uh, on the one hand, what you really needed for this show, in my opinion, right, the the opinion of me, a nobody, to for this show to really have a good conclusion was more episodes and or another season. There's just right. too much story they tried to fit into too short of a period of time. And uh, what ends up happening is uh, the, the, the story beats are completely compromised. They feel very rushed 
and like they're all jam packed in together, and it just doesn't feel like storytelling that is in control. It feels like it's gone off the rails. So yeah, that. But at the same time, you you look at this documentary of the of the making of the final season, and I don't know that these people had another season in them, right? I don't yeah. know that they could have made like physically they were able to make another season, and so. I, I want to be realistic that like storytelling and filmmaking um, are very often related, but often like you're limited by what is actually possible financially and physically in the world. Yeah, and that that's what came across. It's like okay, everyone's like ideally you had another season. Why not ten more episodes? It's not like they didn't have the money, you know. Like, but the problem is the creators don't want to do it. Like the, maybe the people working on the show don't want to do it anymore. You know, there's all these factors that that kind of conflict with what our ideal vision for this is so yeah. so i want to start by saying like i recognize that just because yeah. we want something doesn't mean it's possible right that, that yeah. it had more seasons but i would say that probably the two biggest things maybe there's three or four and you can you can name them but but the two biggest things that led to the final season being regarded as not good are danny's turn to and and her torching king's landing Right. And kind of the build, the build up to that, which seemed rushed at best, and then the finale in which Bran sits on the Iron Throne, which right. to me, I know other people disagree, but to me, felt like it came completely out of nowhere. Like uh, other people are like, "Oh yes, it completely makes sense." They've been laying the track for that the whole season, the whole series, and I'm just like, "What show are you watching?" Uh, so th- th- those are a couple of the decisions that yeah. the final season makes. Yeah. Now, now, I, I would never expect you to to weigh in negatively on a show that you have written the official companion for. Right. But I am curious, uh, your comment earlier about how you said, if you had released this book prior to the final season coming yeah. out, what, what you would have looked dumb. What, what, what are you referring to? What things did you write that, you know, once the final season aired, you're like, wow, I, I'm really glad I dodged this bullet. I think a lot of it comes down to the sort of structure of the piece. I think the Danny stuff would be particularly uh, the biggest issue. And I think the the nature of sort of Daenerys' character arc uh, is that, yeah, it was rushed. I don't think it's completely out of character, but I think, like I said, I think there was some push on editorial that she was like this feminist hero for the show. And I think that there was a lot of like language that was very much just sort of like of all this and playing all that out. And I think that... That kind of got well, amplified. Pe- pe- people named their children yeah, after, correct. after. So like, you know? it's not like my editors were like off on cloud nine. Like this was a real thing people felt that it was just not how I would have framed it. Ultimately, we sort of, I felt like we had modulated a little bit, but it still would have read weird. But I think the other big thing is sort of that like the book, and it's actually still structured this way because of where it was in editorial. And like towards the end, I'm just like, why is it still this way? And they're just like, we can't go back and change it now. But like the book is like leading you up to the White Walkers as the big bad of the show right and it's like kind of building you up to this point where like they're the last thing the book talks about because that's when it was first written it was before the final season it was just like oh here it's everything's coming you know this big battle (laughs) and then like it's just gone it's completely irrelevant (laughs) the the white walkers battle is resolved in one episode i wrote i wrote this big essay about like what are the night king's motives and we still don't know we still have no idea what his motives were because the show never really got interested in that question and i think it's that like what happened was effectively a lot of what i was interested in about these characters the sort of like the grace notes of every one of those essays was just like what's going to happen next and I feel as so like what I was anticipating for the next chapter of the story was just not what happened. And I feel like it would have read very It, it was strange. not what the, the creators of the show wanted to, 
to resolve basically right and i think and i think that's a circumstance where like ultimately like i wrote these things they went through the publisher and then they theoretically went through someone involved in the production i have no idea who read it specifically what they were reading it for um what the notes they had were never anything that i would call like deeply restrictive or anything like that um it seemed like more of that was coming from more of a conservative licensing perspective than necessarily a creator perspective but like from my perspective the way they were talking and what they were sort of working with like, nobody questioned what I was saying. It's like nobody, despite they'd written the final season, nobody was stopping the book as if to say, uh, this is really not going to go well, guys. This is not going to look like. <laughs> um, so, like, I don't think I said anything that was, like, wildly crazy. Uh, but at the same time, like, I was fighting these battles over these kind of, you know, little small things that I was kind of working through. Like, as an example, like, one of my big things the first draft of the book was there were words they wouldn't let me use that the show used all the time. Um, like I couldn't sit, use the word bastard, and I was just like, guys, like there's an episode with it in the title. It's a thing they're constantly <laughs> it's talking about. Like, right, it's called yeah. Battle of the Bastards. Like it's called Battle of the Bastards, and I know it's like you can't call a person that. And I'm like, but they, that's a technical term in the context of this world, in context. And they're just like, you can't. So just I just I just said illegitimate child a lot. Um, but then it's like, but then they're like, you can't say dwarf, and I'm just like. Again, I'm not using this in a derogatory way. It's what they call Tyrion in the context of the show. Like, how do we move around this? And then they're just like, you can't do it. And then they said I couldn't use eunuch. And I'm just like, wait a minute. Like, I'm really confused (laughs) about this one. Like, this is just a term, like, historically that we talk about. Like, I'm not talking about castration in this really vivid way. Like, what's the issue? And they're just like, no. And I'm like, how is this? How is this? But, like, I was so focused on that the first time through. And the second time through, I was just like, how in the world do I explain this brand story? Like, how do I take an essay about Bran <laughs> that was basically about, like, he's been, you know, spending some time up in the north learning some Raven stuff. Um, to what end, we don't know. To them being like, yeah, he's king now. Was sort of like, okay, I need to connect some dots. Like, this essay is all of a sudden way more important to this book instead of just being a supporting case. So it's like, you have to think that every time you saw something in the show where it's just like, whoa, this really seemed like it came out of left field, I was on the phone with the publishers just being like, okay, what did we say before and how does that now say this other thing and you know i think for me i on the one hand was just sort of like oh well that's not ideal for various reasons but it actually became really fascinating for me where like i had to put myself in the shoes of just like okay how do i explain this and i I felt like my job was to sort of connect dots and to sort of draw like i felt i was doing much more substantive work when it came to interpreting the final season because a lot of it wasn't on the screen i think a lot of people were confused about what was going Mm. on in the final season and so like some of those amazon reviews i shouldn't have read uh where people talk about how like they felt like the book connected dots for them in a way better than the show did and i was just like that for me was kind of my goal was to say okay brand story i agree kind of out of left field moving through but here's how we can trace this back to whatever i say i'm sure i said some nonsense the point being that like i felt like that was a sort of interesting challenge and to be fair something that i always tried to do in my reviews of the show as well where it's just like look this doesn't fully work here's what i think they're trying to get at here's like my general read in the final season of the show is that i think all the decisions they made two were two things 
One, uh, things George R. R. Martin told them were the end game of the books. I 100% believe that. I don't think any of the major turns in the final seasons um, are completely away. I think he's just going to put so much more legwork into them the show didn't have time for. Whether they work in that context, we'll see. The other factor, though, is that I think that they're not inherently bad. I think it's contextually bad. And so being able to try to provide as much additional context as I can just in terms of rhetoric and language became sort of an exercise for me to try to see, to try to see if some of these things worked or not. And it's like, in the end, I think the brand twist is something that I don't think I can fully sell that, but I feel like I can at least go to what the show is trying to kind of articulate around that and build from there. And so I felt like that was, I really felt like I was in control in that moment of some people's perspective on the final season of the show by nature of sort of shaping not a canonical explanation for some things, but in a way the closest we might get to a canonical narrative justification for parts of what happens there, which felt very like powerful and kind of fun uh, in a way that I think maybe modulated some of my frustration or disappointment because I was focused instead on sort of how to make this connect. Fascinating. Uh, A couple thoughts. One is, you keep talking about these Amazon reviews you shouldn't read. We should point out that overwhelmingly the reviews are positive oh, on yeah. the book. Oh, yeah. So you have, according to Amazon, you have 208 reviews, four and a half star average. So it's very, that's very, very strong. And uh, I also want to point out that, uh, it, yeah, it is interesting that you basically thought you were doing one thing with this book, yeah. right? And then realized you were doing another. And then after the delay realized you were doing another right like yeah you, so like I, I went in i went in very much thinking that like okay this is my opportunity to contextualize some of these pieces and then it became very clear that even the sort of whisper of like <laughs> like i wasn't allowed to write about prostitution in the context of the story and I was just like, I'm very confused. Like, this is an important opportunity for us to, like, contextualize. Like, the character of Roz, who's introduced as a generic prostitute um, in Winterfell, but then goes to King's Landing, is such, a, like, an interesting point about power and women in this world. And she has this whole great narrative arc. And I wanted to rescue her from the feeling that she was just this sort of sexual object in the story. And they were just like, you can't talk about it. And I'm just like, excuse me? And I'm just like, yeah, it's just a complete no-go. And I'm like, and I don't know if that was like, it, they also weren't allowed to show blood at all. So I'm wondering if it's a censorship issue, if they were trying to sell the book in China or somewhere where those scenes might yeah, be Yeah, I mean, I mean there's, like, many, there's many places that right. probably wouldn't carry the book if it had yeah. mention of any of these things. So, so they're, I know, so they're trying I, to maximize the target market, basically. Right, and I totally understood that principle, but it was just like, I felt like I was given a slight false bill of goods, but I'm like, okay, I can manage that. Yeah, you can manage and then you're like, okay, uh, I'm writing this book, and uh, you know, who knows where Danny's storyline is going to end? And that's where you thought you were going to end. Uh, but yeah. then the new season comes out, and people react strongly to it. Then you have to pivot and kind of, and, and, and until the George R. R. Martin books come out, this book is one of the few places where you can get an explanation canonically for I, what the heck actually happened right i think there's two there's two points in particular where like i literally wrote these pieces sent them off and i'm just like i have no idea like legitimately <laughs> what actually happened here i'm gonna make work. one is like what the heck happens with gray worm um and how we sort of articulate the end of his story because like his actions towards the end after like these people have you know have his how does he end up where he is what does he do in the intervening period but kind of like the time jump in that case and i'm just like 
I'm going to go ahead and say this. This is what I'm going to say. And I'm just like, whatever they say. And I think it ended up going through. And the other was like John's ending, which I never saw ambiguously right off the bat. I was just like, he's going off and joining the wildlings and kind of charting his own path, independent of Westeros, kind of like just kind of moving off and kind of becoming this sort of version of the King of the North, but free of the sort of burdens that he had been facing and dealing with. And then, like, I go online, everyone's just, now he's just going out ranging. He'll be back at the wall soon enough. Like, totally just normal. And I was just like, um, okay, I didn't read it that way, but I realized there was a debate <laughs> about this. And I realized very quickly that, like, they weren't going to clarify it, right? They weren't doing interviews. There wasn't anything that would be specifically talking about this. So I'm just like, when I submitted my read on it, I'm just like, I guess this is the closest we're going to get. And eventually it came back in play, intact. So it's like that became, I guess, the canonical explanation of what he does in that context. And like, yeah, like suddenly all the little sentences I wrote where it's like, what's going to happen next? Suddenly it had to be, here's what their story arc means and here's why it's important. And I'm just like, I had to go back to one of those essays and just like do a rewrite of what was still important, what was now not important to that final arc point. And I think some characters stayed fairly consistent. I think someone like Arya's arc basically reaffirmed her journey. Um, she kind of reached a natural point. Same with Sansa. That kind of like felt like it was all kind of like a tra very traditional narrative arc structure. But then, like, you get to someone like Jamie, who felt like he was going through a redemption arc, but then, like, the yeah. way he dies brings him back to Cersei and back to this sort of dynamic. And so it's like, okay, then I have to figure out what that meant, the sort of nature of that tragedy that changed Brienne's perspective on this and their relationship and kind of, like, like weaving that in and out. And so, like, yeah, it became an issue of, like, some of these essays have changed in terms of the ending, that I just had to, like, clarify what that meant. Others had to feel like they were doing a completely different purpose to recontextualize an arc that felt like it was going in different directions. And, like, we want to be surprised by TV. We didn't want to know exactly what was going to happen. Like, I would have been mad if I had predicted everything, too. Um, but it definitely became, like I guess that it was a different sort of set of challenges that I enjoyed. I think it ended up being really, uh, in many ways, more fulfilling, I think, than the alternative, which would have been the initial plan was I was going to like write a set of like follow-up essays that would be released digitally so it's like hey the show ended now here's some additional content but like in retrospect it would have been like whoops guys uh, about like 80% <laughs> of that you're saying the original plan where this book came out before the final season yeah right? yeah was then yeah, yeah. that I would just so, like make it a few additional pieces so uh, a, a few thoughts on this w one is that I, I think it's I've always found it fascinating that like what kind of writing people value in the world. And this book is, my sense is like an adaptation of the show, right? Like it's 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 basically a book version of the show in some ways. Or there's a piece of, there's like, the I, I think in many ways, like if you had changed this from being a like character essay focused kind of non-linear experience and presented in a linear way of breaking down season by season, the work within yeah. it is not dissimilar from that of say a sort of like a junior a novelization. novelization. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's fascinating how uh, if you take a novel and convert it into a screenplay, uh, it's a very highly regarded task, right? It, the, people give out awards for that mm -hmm. task. Um, and, but if you take a uh, movie and convert it into a novel, like it's generally not as highly regarded in terms no. of a, an act of writing, which is a shame because I think, and hopefully people listening to this get a sense that like uh, creating novelization or a companion book does involve a great deal of problem solving as well. 
And, yeah, uh, and it, it should be it should be well regarded. I so, mean, like, I definitely anyway. think that like I had a I had a very and like people who've been following me might know this. Like, I definitely wasn't just like this is the most proud I've ever been of something that's ever happened. Everybody should go buy it and read it. And part of this was because <laughs> there's a few reasons for this that I would talk about. One of them is that like it was 50 United States dollars when it first came out before it was discounted, and I feel like that's a lot to ask of something that in many ways my writing is not the most prominent part of. And so I felt like that kind of felt like you don't need to go out and support me with $50 at this point. That's not necessary if that's how you approach this. I felt bad about that in context um, in kind of moving through this. The other piece of that, though, was that like I definitely And, and did... we, should, we should contextualize that Miles has uh, had a, shall we say... Um... <laughs> Blase attitude in terms of the promotion of this book. Like this, this interview that we're doing is probably one of the uh, most high effort pieces of work you're putting into promoting this book. Is that accurate? Yeah, to that say? sounds about right. Like I literally like wrote a big long Instagram post about how I, I I wrote a book, but I didn't write a book, which is like, what does that even mean, Miles? Um, and I think what it meant for me is that like in so you have to think of this in two contexts, right? One of them is that like there are some people who like they pitch a book. Where there's like this, this passionate thing that they're the only one that can write and they go out into the world and they sell it and their vision is being validated and respected. And then that vision comes out and it's the sort of manifestation of all of their work and effort. And it's like this book existed before me and it would have existed without me. And it is what it is because of me, but realistically it's not that same level of product. And I felt like to position this as like, this is my book. Which, so, by the way, is a lot harder message to convey than buy my book. Correct. Buy my book. Correct. And so I <laughs> leave it to me to take on that particular task. But like, that's definitely, I think, part of what that looked like, where it felt like I didn't want to give the suggestion that I was placing myself on the same level um, as those people in those contexts. The other factor is that like within the world of academia, which is technically my day job, it's what I do. When you write a book in that context, it's like the manifestation of a decade's worth of research. It's this sort of like, you know, legwork of kind of intellectual thought and exercise. And for me to then say, hey, my book is coming out, that means something different in that context. And I didn't want to give the suggestion that I saw this as being that um, and as being on that same level and as feeling like it was the ultimate manifestation. Like you say, it's like my voice is not in this book as much. And the process of writing it to talk about that when it first came out would have maybe been perceived as being more compromising um, in context than rather than being promotional. And so for me, I had that ambivalence towards it. And it's like, that's not to say I'm not proud of the work that I did. I think it's just a matter of feeling like if I had gone full bore on it, I would have had people come back to me where it's like, I paid $50 to read your book. And like, and, I, and I'll say this, and I say this with true, true honesty, it's like, this book isn't really designed to be read. Like legitimately, like you're not really supposed to read it. Like you can flip through it and you can like pick at it and go through it kind of rigorously. But like it's it's out of order. It doesn't actually flow all that well if you go from chapter to chapter to chapter. And like I tried in terms of getting them reorganized at different times, but like it's really not built that way. And so I think it felt weird to sort of put this out into the world in that format. It felt better to sort of just talk about it, to make people aware of what it is and who it's for. It is a great gift idea. I think people who've read it have generally sort of really loved it and really enjoyed it. Um, but at the same time, like, I actually don't know if people have actually read it so much as they've just looked at it. And so I think that's where a lot of that sits. Let me, let me recap the last five minutes of what Miles said. Buy Miles's book. 
Buy, I mean, bu- I'm not mad. Buy Miles's book, guys. Buy Buy Miles's book. If you if you're gonna, I will say that like I will say that the four dollar <laughs> and like when I posted the four dollar sale was just the ebook version. I'm just like, look, like if you had sat out the book because of the price tag and because it's not what you're looking for, like I would really appreciate if people buy it for four dollars and actually read it to see the work that I did and to kind of go through that because, like, legitimately, like despite you know, I, I know people in my world who bought it and they sent me photos of it. It was in Costco in Canada. That was a big deal, by the way. Um, definitely, like you just kind of showing up and like people were very proud and moving through. But like, I didn't get a lot of feedback on the actual content of the book um it didn't seem like people really like i never no one has ever said what you said to me which is how i agree i agree with you about how that played out and so it's like if people now read it and have thoughts and kind of want to listen to me the only real feedback i got was from brienne and jamie shippers who were very satisfied with how i canonically framed their relationship that was the most substantive feedback that i received in this context well i i definitely know what it's like to not get feedback on things miles but you know Sometimes you just got to keep putting stuff out there and then one day someone might read or listen to it and respond well. And that's, you know, and this, is, honestly, this is the, yeah, go like ahead. The, the reality in this situation is that like, I, I, I have every reason to believe thousands of people read this, right? Like, I don't think it was like, I, 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 have, I literally have no idea how many copies it sold. I have no idea if they were happy or not. I never really fully followed up. And my, the p- person I worked with and the sort of the editor of the book is no longer there. And so it's like, I don't really have direct insights into that. But like, by all accounts, the Amazon reviews, the people who've kind of, you know, had it in different contexts, people seem to have enjoyed it. It seems to have served its function in a particular way. But I think what I realized going in, and maybe part of why I wasn't like actively trying to solicit this feedback, was that the kind of people reading this book were never going to give me the feedback I wanted. Right. Like I want that like in-depth, you know, conversation. I want to be able to have this conversation with people. And the vast this, majority this of people, is the feedback. This is right. the feedback you want. This, this is conversation. What I've, this is really what I've been waiting for. And yet realistically in that context, right, the average reader of this book is never going to view it through that lens. Right. This isn't going to be their perspective on this. And I knew that going in. And I kind of I think self-fulfilling prophecy was just sort of not going to engage with the book in certain contexts because it felt like it just wasn't meant for that environment. Like the people who are reading my Game of Thrones reviews, I would argue are not gonna get much out of this. And I knew that and I wasn't designing it for that purpose, but I also think that that meant that maybe I didn't frame it through that lens uh, out of the desire not to create false impressions, to give to give a sense that the book was going to be something that it was never designed to be, even if I'm ultimately sort of proud of the work I was able to do to make it what it is. All right, c- couple closing thoughts. Number one, I'm glad this podcast could serve an important psychological function in your life. Honestly, um, might as well be therapy. <laughs> number, number two, I think all the caveats you listed are fair. It doesn't represent your scholarship. Um, it's it's not necessarily the book you would have written, blah, 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 blah. But, Miles, I don't want you to forget, don't want you to lose sight of the fact that you're the official author of this compendium of Game of Thrones, and that is cool. You've come a long way since the early days when you like you were submitting blog posts to dig that no one was reading i did do that that was the thing remember we did that remember yeah, that was i know thing and did? now and now but now like you're the official yeah. <laughs> the official word on the game of thrones universe until george R. R. martin's books comes out and that's really cool and i just want to make sure you don't lose sight 
of how cool that is. I honestly um, like, so, and that's the thing where I will say like, you know, family, friends, everybody was very like excited. And when people read my like long screen articulating why I wrote a book, but I didn't really write a book again, an insane thing to say, um, they were just like, oh, that's all really understandable, but this is still really cool. And like, I know I gave myself that moment. Like I'm currently surrounded by copies of this book that are weighing down my desk. So it doesn't shake too much. I've got the UK edition. I've got the Spanish, French and German language editions um, that were released internationally. But, but, but you know, Miles, here's, here's what I'd say is I would say that, you know, that whole speech I gave earlier in the podcast about how some pe- sometimes people just want to enjoy things, you know, and they, they just they're they they're, no, I, I don't remember uh, that. They, that doesn't sound right to me. That, I feel like they listen I would to have a Game heard of Thrones that. podcast because they want to enjoy Game of Thrones. Sometimes, Miles, they support you because they want to support you. They don't oh. need to hear all that other stuff. Huh, that's so anyway, just just something to keep it. Just something to keep in mind. Basically, think of it like you're doing people like me a favor by uh, enjoying the release mm. of your book more. Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So, I, I, will, I will, in retrospect, a year later do that. Miles McNutt is a cultural critic, and he, his writings have appeared at AV Club and Slate, uh, as well as his personal blog, Cultural Learnings. He's also a media professor at Old Dominion University. His book, Game of Thrones, A Guide to Westeros and Beyond, the complete series, is on sale right now and available for purchase on sites like Amazon and wherever your fine books can be sold. Miles McNutt, thanks for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. Uh, uh, you can send me the bill later. <laughs> Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. It's a part of the show each week where I recommend something I've been reading, listening to, watching, eating, drinking, etc. This week, I want to recommend The Crown Season 4, which I just finished. And... This struck me as a show that I would have absolutely zero interest in. I don't really enjoy British shows about British royalty and all the madcap adventures they get up to. But I'd recently listened to another podcast, You're Wrong About. That's the name of the podcast. And they had discussed the Princess Diana years of the crown, uh, like the actual crown, not the show. Just like what the coverage was of Princess Diana versus the reality. Uh, and uh, I was intrigued. So I watched uh, a couple episodes, and I think it's a really brilliant show. It manages to be a stirring indictment of the institution of the monarchy while also being uh, a thing that hum- a piece of work that humanizes all these people that are caught up in it. So uh, I'm probably going to go back and watch the earlier seasons, but uh, for now, I just watched season four without any context whatsoever and still found the show to be quite enjoyable. It's The Crown season four. It's one of the most popular shows in the world, you don't really need me to recommend it, but suffice to say, I enjoyed it. And uh, before you ask, I would never recommend someone watch season four without watching seasons one through three of any show, but I was able to enjoy it, and I probably would have enjoyed it more if I'd watched the earlier seasons. Let's hear what Miles McNutt has to recommend for his weekly recommendation. So at the end of the day, uh, I was skeptical of Ted Lasso in the way that others were, but you've probably now heard at this point it's the perfect like quarantine lockdown show, and that seems strange. And but like somebody sort of suggested, it's like it's a warm hug of a show. Like it's just it's just so welcoming and warm and positive and kind of like Friday Night Lights but quippier. And I think it's definitely worth your time. There's 10 episodes on Apple. Two more seasons are coming. Um, I think it just it's also very well modulated, understands its story. And it's also just kind of very uplifting and uh, good. And good is good in this moment in time. 
That's going to do it for us today on Culturally Relevant. And again, if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a star rating or a review at Apple Podcasts uh, or follow the, sh- the podcast on Twitter at CREVSHOW, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Uh, this podcast was edited and produced by me, David Chen, and it was powered by Simplecast, uh, a great way of managing and analyzing your podcast. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, I'd recommend Simplecast. Uh, I really appreciate what they do. Thanks for listening. Have a great holiday. We'll be back next week with a bonus episode of some kind. Be well, be safe, be healthy. Thanks for listening.